it is a pleasure to be with you all today. Good to be able to celebrate Mission Sunday and be reminded not just of just the beauty of getting to support missions, both locally and internationally, but also being reminded of the role we play in that support and the role we play in bringing the gospel to those around us in our own lives. With that in mind, we still find ourselves in 1 John, and so let's begin our time by reading 1 John chapter 2, we'll be covering verses 18 through 27. 1 John 2, 18 through 27. There John writes, Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out, so that it would be shown that they are not of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things, it is true and it is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. This is the word of God. Please be seated. If you have never watched a boxing match, or if your only exposure to boxing comes in the form of Rocky movies, you might be under the mistaken assumption that a boxing match basically consists of a bell ringing and two people brutally beating on each other for however many minutes it takes to knock the opponent out. The reality, of course, for those of you who've watched an actual boxing match, is that most boxers, at least the best boxers, are typically going to be much more methodical in their approach. There's far more strategy involved in boxing than simply hurling punch after punch after punch. There's a reason why boxing has been referred to as the sweet science. For any boxing champion, understands that before entering into the ring, they have to already know their opponent very well. They have to know exactly their opponent's tendencies, their strengths and their weaknesses. They have to know how long they'll have to withstand the barrage of attacks that are likely to come. And as they understand their opponent's tendencies, as they understand their strategies, they also can understand the strategy and, and mission that they are set on in that ring. And they understand the importance of patiently waiting out their opponent, carefully wearing the opponent down, not only with, with throwing jabs, but also with feints to deceive their opponent. And only after deceiving their opponent time and time again and wearing that opponent down and working them into the absolutely perfect angle is the boxer able to then hit them with their own barrage of attacks. Now, even if you are in no way interested in boxing, as I have been a fan of throughout much of my life, and even if you have no intention of ever getting in a fight, and I don't recommend you ever do that, we understand as we read 1 John that every single believer is called to engage in a very specific fight. Whether or not we realize it, we have an opponent coming to attack us. And just like any championship boxer, John here reminds us of the importance of, of knowing who that opponent is. 
understanding their typical strategies, the messages that they're bringing, and understanding that they too are on a very specific mission, a mission that is meant to harm you, to deceive you. As believers, then we must take great care and precaution to, to study that opponent, to understand what his message will sound like, to understand what it looks like to engage in that fight. For it is only in understanding that opponent, understanding their identity, their mission, their message, that we can then better understand what it looks like for us to fulfill our calling, as John tells us. What it looks like for us to engage with the contrasting message, what it looks like for us to be rooted constantly in our identity that makes us so different from the rest of the world. As we look at this passage today, my prayer is that we might all be motivated in the fight set before us. And on this particular Sunday, as we emphasize missions, my additional hope is that we understand this fight is not just for those full-time missionaries, nor is our fighting simply going to be found in, in supporting people financially, although that's important. Instead, every Christian is inside the ring. Every Christian is called on to fight. And so let us be careful to understand the fight as John describes it so that we too can be successful in our calling. With that being said, let's go and open our time in prayer and we'll begin understanding our opponent a bit better. Father in heaven, we thank you for our time today. We thank you already for the incredible amount of encouragement that comes in watching those many videos from missionaries that we have the great blessing to support locally and abroad. What a glorious reminder it is of the fact that you are at work, even in the midst of COVID, in the midst of just this crazy year we've had for the last 12 months. You have been at work, and you have brought many souls to salvation, and we praise you for that. We thank you for the fact that we're able to play a small part in that, even just by supporting others financially. And we pray that you continue to bless the missionaries we support. Give us wisdom as we consider what other missionaries we might continue to support or begin supporting in the coming months, in the coming year. We pray, Father, for those missionaries as they work tirelessly, oftentimes in very difficult circumstances. Speak powerfully through them. Might they effectively bring the word within their own context. But God, as we pray for them, we also pray for ourselves here locally. As we consider the words of John today, might we be reminded of the fact that the fight is not just abroad, the fight is here as well. Knowing that fight is all around us then and knowing that we are called to engage might we seriously strive to better understand the opponent set before us? As we understand that opponent, might we understand our own identity and might we remember our mission? And then so doing, might we be effective in fulfilling the calling you've given each and every one of us? We love you, God, and we praise you. Remove all distractions from our minds at this time. Cause us to be built up as a unified body of Christ as we seek to fulfill the mission set before us. It is in your precious Son, Jesus Christ's name, that we pray all these things. Amen. As we begin our time, we begin first by understanding our opponent, for without understanding that opponent, we will not be effective in our fight. John speaks of our opponent in the first number of verses in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23, and he, to a certain extent, names them. He gives us their identity right off the bat in verses 18 through 19. Follow along with me, if you will, as we see that identity. John there says, children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown to you that they all are not of us. As John, again, begins speaking to his people and reminds them of the calling set before them, he, he reminds them where they stand in the unfolding narrative of history. 
And in that unfolding narrative, he understands that those believers and us as believers today stand in the concluding chapters of that story. For there's no longer any significant event that stands in the way of, of Christ's return. We no longer are waiting for the Messiah to come for the first time. He has come. He has risen from the dead. And so we know that we, like the believers in John's days, are, are living in those last days, historically speaking. In the light of those end times, John speaks of really two different opponents, but both ultimately the same. He speaks first, in verse 18, of this future figure that is yet to come, the Antichrist. As John speaks of this figure here, he speaks of him again in 2 John 7 and 8. We'll read that here in a moment. Many commentators believe that as John speaks of the Antichrist, he speaks of the same individual that is prophesied of back in books like Daniel, in chapters 8 through 11, really. The same figure that Jesus Christ himself speaks of in the Olivet Discourse in passages like Mark 13. In all these passages, there is this future figure, sometimes called the Antichrist, sometimes called the abomination of desolation. Regardless of where you stand on that future identity of the person, we understand that there is this figure that awaits. He will be here in the final day. And a great deal of debate can be had over this specific identity of who exactly John is referring to. And while that is interesting to study, it's important to note that 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 future figure is not John's primary concern here. Nor do I think it should be our primary concern as a body of believers today. John's greatest concern is not the identity of that future Antichrist, but it's the presence of those plural Antichrists that John says these believers knew full well. These present figures are already at work in the body of believers. And they are marked by the fact that they have, as John says, gone out from us. Now as John says this, you should perhaps remember that which we've already covered in 1 John. And you remember that the cause for John's concern, the cause for John writing this letter, is the existence of these false converts. These individuals that once upon a time professed faith in Christ, but they have since seceded from the church. And they're now sowing discord amongst the believers. As John describes those present antichrists, then he is speaking of those false believers. And it's important to believe from the beginning then that when we speak of our opponent, and even when we name these antichrists, we're not speaking of genuine believers that have soured, that have lost their salvation. Now these people, John says, were never of us. It's an important point to remember, for if you believe that you can lose your salvation, the presence of these antichrists would be quite terrifying, wouldn't they? For as we read of these individuals, we might be convinced that, well, maybe that's going to be me someday. Maybe I never can be certain of my salvation. If, if these were genuine believers, well, who can possibly be certain of their salvation? John makes it clear again, these were never true believers. He's made it clear numerous times that he is confident in the salvation of his readers. In the same way that we who have placed our faith in Christ can and should be confident that we are saved once and forevermore. Our opponent then is not the opponent of genuine believers that have since turned. They are simply those who have shown their true color. And they show their true color by turning against us and leaving the church. Understanding that identity though, John presses further and he reminds us exactly the, the nature of this opponent, specifically their strategy or really their message that they employ, that they spread. You see the message of our opponent referenced briefly here in our verses. Just look at verse 22 through 23 of our passage. 
speaking to the message of these opponents, John says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. In a similar manner, if you turn just a couple pages over to 2 John. In 2 John, verses 7 through 8, John again speaks of these deceivers, these antichrists, and he again describes the message that the opponent is carrying about. In 2 John, verse 7 through 8, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus as coming in the flesh, this is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished, but you may receive a full reward. In both these passages, you see the message of these antichrists, the message of the opponents that John is so concerned about. That message, it seems, is a message that denies the the humanity of Jesus Christ. If you were with us in our earlier weeks in 1 John, you'll perhaps remember that, that name Gnosticism. This broad idea that, that eventually grew out of the early church, or, or, or in essence grew out of these false teachings. And while Gnosticism is far too complex to really delve into in our context this morning, at its heart it is just the denial of the flesh, the denial of the world. It's the belief that our true selves are our spiritual selves. All that is material, all that is fleshly is fallen, it is bad, it is wicked. As a result of this belief, these individuals would say that while Jesus appeared to have a body, he didn't actually have a physical body. He wasn't really human. He was just a divine messenger that appeared human. Now, this message, while convincing many people, was, of course, incredibly problematic in the early church, isn't it? Incredibly problematic for people to be professing it. For if you get rid of the humanity of Christ, well, you really get rid of all that Christ came to provide. For if you throw out Christ's human body, you throw out the virgin birth, you throw out any idea of atonement, for there cannot be any physical death, physical resurrection. Ultimately, you throw out any hope of Jesus being a proper representation of humanity. And so while these individuals sounded very philosophical, very intelligent in their argument, John's clear point back in 1 John chapter 2 is that the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ The one who denies that Jesus has a fleshly body is one that doesn't actually know Christ at all. They are holding on to a false gospel, a false vision of who Jesus Christ truly is. And so in describing our opponent, John is clearly describing these people who are never of the church, that is to say they're never genuinely saved. In addition to that, they carry about this message that that falls short of the true gospel. It falls short of an accurate and biblical picture of Christianity and of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, having said that, we can understand immediately why John would be concerned. That is to say, we can understand why that message would be dangerous for those who who uphold it. For those who believe in such a message cannot be saved. But there still remains the question of why John would be so careful and so, so quick to warn these believers about that message, about the opponent that carries this message. What is What is John's great concern? For after all, what believer would ever be tempted to to believe or be convinced that Jesus isn't actually the Christ? Who would be so foolish as to believe something so fallen? But we understand from our text, here in 1 John as well as in 2 John, 
is that these false converts did not just keep this message to themselves. No, these false converts were taking this message to the world. They were on mission. And that mission, according to John, was a mission of deception. We spoke of that earlier when we read 1 John chapter 2, verse 26. Again there, John says, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. These individuals are actively trying to deceive you, believer. These individuals are trying to bring their message into the church to try to lure you away. In a similar manner, in 2 John verses 7 through 8, we read just a few moments ago how these individuals are hard at work to deceive believers there as well. Again, 2 John verse 8, he says, Watch yourselves that you do not lose what you have accomplished. Point being, these individuals again are, are actively trying to deceive believers. As you understand the nature of this opponent, as you understand their identity, their message, you understand that they very much are carrying out their own mission. They very much are bringing the fight to believers. And based off of how much John speaks of these false converts, based off of how much church fathers wrote on Gnosticism and on these false teachings, it was clear that in those early days, these false teachers were in fact quite effective at what they were doing. As strange as it might sound to us, these false believers were incredibly successful in making their own disciples and building up their own communities and building up their own religions. And again, for many of us today, this can seem somewhat odd, for Gnosticism sounds so foreign. Even when I try to explain this denial of the flesh, I find myself thinking, this is such a bizarre set of beliefs. Who could ever actually believe this? But as you read throughout history, you understand what made this opponent so successful in their mission. For one, they were successful because they did speak of Christ in name. They carried with them elements of truth. You have to recall that these false teachers, these false converts, were once a part of local church community. So they could quote Bible verses to you all day. They could talk about Jesus. They could, they could reference the teachings of Christ. Many of them, no doubt, could reference teachings in the Old Testament as well. And so in making their arguments, they no doubt could sound very biblical, at least in the language they used. Because of that, you can understand why some believers would be confused for, well, they use the same vocabulary as us. Perhaps I'm mistaken. Perhaps they have the right message. Not only that, but it is clear that in embracing these, these teachings of Gnosticism, they're also embracing a teaching that would have sounded immediately familiar to just your typical Roman citizen. For all that worldview sounds foreign to us, that denial of the flesh was something that many Romans believed in. And so it seemed these false teachers were quite, quite brilliant because not only were they able to take some of those familiar aspects of the faith and Christianity, they were also able to take some aspects that were familiar from culture. And they just married them. They just merged the two together. And as a result, they created a faith that would have not only sounded more attractive to believers, but also more attractive to the world around them. And so as a believer, you can imagine why that would be appealing. For who amongst us doesn't want to sound more appealing or more attractive or more intellectual to the world around us? Well, Gnosticism gives you that chance. Your opponent gives you that opportunity. Once so they were effective, not only in their ability to, to take teachings of Christ, but also in their ability to take teachings of culture. Even beyond that, what is perhaps most fascinating as you study church history is you understand these false teachers' ability to latch on to popular culture as well. 
One great example of this came in a later false teaching under the name of Arianism. You don't need to know anything about Arianism for the sake of this morning, but what is helpful to note is, is one of the ways Arianism got so popular, similar to Gnosticism, is the teachers of Arianism took popular tunes that would have been sung by sailors, would have been sung by people in local bars, and they took these tunes and they replaced their lyrics with, with the teachings of Arianism. And they started singing them in town. And they would walk around humming these tunes, singing their new words. And so before you knew it, you had both professing believers as well as complete pagans singing Arianism in the seaports. Singing Arianism in their diners. Spreading these teachings that they themselves, of course, had no understanding of. Theologian Athanasius wrote against Arianism and spoke of their, their great ability to do this, to popularize their teaching and, and do it in a way that even professing believers were foolishly giving into, not realizing they were latching on to this false vision of Christ. From the very beginning of the church then, what you see is that the world has very effectively taken their own mission to go and make disciples. The world has not sat back idly and said, hey Christians, have at it. Make your own disciples. Teach whatever you want. No, the world is actively teaching, and it does so in very deceptive ways. That, of course, did not stop in the early church. We still see how the world does this all around us today, don't we? We still understand that our opponent is still just as clever. There are still just as many antichrists in our culture today. And their strategies, in essence, have never changed. For while they don't use words like Gnosticism, they certainly still use popular culture to spread their beliefs. You see this in children's television programming. You see this in the way that, that society has shifted in their views of, of marriage, of homosexuality. They do so not through academic teaching and lectures. They do so through personal testimonies. By going door to door. And introducing themselves and explaining what true love is and what love has looked like in their own lives. We see the ability of popularizing godless traditions. And we see people do so in the name of religion. In the name of traditions. Some of these examples are blatantly obvious in our culture today. Others are harder to name. For they're so ingrained in our own traditions. And so you have many believers who pass down visions of freedom. That they think sound biblical. But really are those traditions that, that worship self-autonomy. They have nothing to do with God. They have everything to do with the freedom of the self. The worship of the self. And you understand that there are traditions in which the self has been raised to this godlike status where our own personal feelings, our own personal beliefs are, are lifted high above anyone else. And again, we do this in the name of individualism. We do this in the name of freedom. But as we do this, we can unknowingly spread teachings and traditions that are far outside of Christianity. That, that simplify God down to our level. And just like the world that John lived in, we can very quickly fall into the attack of the opponent, failing to understand what he is doing to us. So as believers, it's essential to, to understand this, to know that we still have an opponent today, an opponent that takes partial truths of Scripture, twists them to support humanity, to support this rejection of God. And in so doing, they take the fight to the world, and they are very effective at building up their own disciples. As believers... We can see the world doing this. And many of us are perhaps quick to point it out. But because they are so effective at it, because our opponent is so powerful, many of us can respond by simply feeling overwhelmed. 
And it seemed that even in John's day, many believers were responding in this way where, where they just didn't know how to respond. And so they, in essence, were just hiding their heads in the sand, hoping it would all pass by them quickly. And sadly, many believers seem to follow suit today. We know there's an opponent out there, but we think that if we can hide our heads in the sand or just lock ourselves in a church on a Sunday morning, that somehow we can be preserved. But the fight doesn't, doesn't work like that. For our opponent is far more clever. And so just as John has already told us that we must understand and know our opponent, we also must understand and remember the calling that is given to each and every one of us. And just as we are called to understand our opponent and know his identity, know that message, and know the mission, so too when it comes to taking our fight to them, we must understand our calling or mission, we must understand our strategy or message, and we must understand how it's rooted in our identity. And it begins here in 1 John with an understanding of of our mission or our calling. That calling, I think, can be summarized in our passage today with this word, abide. Look back with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 2. You see this pop up a few different times. First look at verse 24, where John says in response to these false teachers, these false Christs, he says, As for you, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and the Father. Jumping a little further down in our text, in verse 27, he says, As for you, the anointing which you received from him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. To go back to the boxing analogy, here we see that calling that is essential, that, that calling of defending ourselves. Like a boxer, we know the attack is coming. And so we know we have to protect ourselves. We have to, to bottle ourselves up and, and resist being hit successfully. As we do this, we are doing the work of, of abiding, this mission of persevering in the faith. If you read throughout the New Testament, you understand this, this work of perseverance, this calling to abide, is, is very important. It's spoken of quite frequently. And as we read through the New Testament, we see it's, it's both the work of God as well as the work of each and every one of us. You can see Jesus speak to the importance of abiding back in John, John 15. In John 15, as Jesus speaks of his own role as well as the role of his followers, he says this in John 15, beginning in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Time and time again, Jesus speaks of this work of perseverance. This calling to abide in him. The promise is clear that God ultimately keeps us. It is God who's ultimately given the credit for the fruit that has grown in our lives. But as God works through us, we too are called to do the work of abiding, of persevering. We remain actively engaged in Christ. In his book on the assurance of salvation, theologian Thomas Schreiner says of perseverance that it is the mark of true genuine faith. It is the hallmark of genuineness, he says. But it requires effort on our part. It requires active engagement. And so as we are engaged in the fight, as we defend ourselves, we're told we do so to do this work of perseverance. 
But, of course, we must ask, what are we persevering in, John? What are, what are we defending ourselves with? How are we counterattacking the opponent as he comes at us? Well, as John answers that, he again speaks back to this idea of our message and ultimately our identity. We see first this calling to abide in the message. Again, 1 John chapter 2, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. The first thing we're called to abide in our passage, the first work of fighting as a believer, is abiding in the gospel. Abiding in this message of Jesus Christ. And there are a couple points that we must understand regarding this message that I think ultimately are are great encouragement to, to all of us, certainly an encouragement to me. The first point regarding this message is it's something that you and I already know. He says this repeatedly in these few verses. Earlier in chapter 2, verse 21, he says, I've not written you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. In the verse we just read, in verse 24, he speaks of that message that has been from the beginning. If you recall earlier in 1 John chapter 1, he's already spoken of that which has been from the beginning, that message that we have already proclaimed to you, that which you've already placed your faith in. This pre-existing reality of of the knowledge of the faith was so important for these people. For, For again, they were having false teachers coming before them that were insisting on the idea that there's this additional truth out there. They were insisting on convincing them that they didn't have the complete truth, so if they just take this extra step, if they just believe this extra revelation, then and only then can they truly be saved. In response to that, though, John is explicitly telling them, no, no, you already know this. You already know all things, John says. Now, John is not meaning that these believers have no need to learn any new information about God. I hope he's not, because I'm out of a job. Right? He, he is simply referring to the fact that they have no need to, to know anything else in terms of salvation. They have that knowledge which is essential for salvation, for the forgiveness of their sins. And John is able to say this not because he was such an expert teacher, but because this was an essential aspect of the new covenant that God had promised to his people long before John. In your spare time, I encourage you to to go back and read in Jeremiah 31, for there you can see that new covenant promise to the people of God. And one central aspect, one great, great portion of that message regarding the new covenant is found in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33 and 34. He says, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. I will be their God, they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man and his neighbor, each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will declare their iniquity, I will will forgive them their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. You see, this saving knowledge was promised long before John. It is a precious gift of the gospel. For it's a reminder of the fact that, believer, you can be saved even with an infant's level of understanding the gospel. By simply understanding that that you are a sinner in need of a Savior. That Jesus died on, on the cross for your behalf and that through his resurrection you can be born again. You can be saved. That's that which you've already put your faith in. Along those same lines, this message is clearly not only simple or already known, it's It's sufficient. 
It's that message that the people of God repeated time and time again. It's the message that we see in 1 John written to those who already believe it. It's the message repeated over and over again by Paul throughout his epistles. As a young believer, I was somewhat confused by the repetition of that message throughout Scripture. I mean, after all, weren't all the New Testament epistles written to people that already believed it? So why waste the time on reminding them things they've already accepted and know exhaustively? Well, the reason for that is because people like Paul understood that that message really is sufficient. And so they repeated these things over and over and over again. To remind believers, this is the foundation of your faith. This is enough. This is sufficient. This is why when you read passages like 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is able to say in 15 verse 3, I delivered to you as first important what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain, asleep, uh, remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. In a similar way in Colossians, we see Paul almost use this sing-songy approach when he reminds them what he's already proclaimed. Speaking of the beauty of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says, He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. And he goes on and on and describes Christ. What a lot of times we miss in these passages is that there's a cadence to Paul's writing. There's a rhythm to some of these passages in Scripture. And what a lot of commentators believe is that in passages like Colossians 1, in passages like 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is not writing a thought that is original to him. He's quoting songs. He's quoting creeds. And in essence, he's saying, remember children when you learned this in Sunday school? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And he's quoting these childlike songs, these childlike hymns, these creeds that they would have memorized by heart. And he's telling them, remind yourself, repeat this over and over and over again. This is the truth. As a side point, this is one of the reasons why children's ministry is so key, is so essential. This is why something as, as seemingly boring as going back to children's worship and singing silly songs to those kids can actually be the difference of whether or not they remember the faith as they grow older. For as they're tempted as they grow older, suddenly those songs come back in mind. And they're reminded of those basic simple truths. I don't know if you were raised in church. I was blessed to be raised in church. And I still rely heavily on some of those songs as I remember the order of the books of the Bible. I'm still amazed as I listen through children's music with my own children that, that speak of the glory of God, the humanity of Christ. And I'm reminded of how precious it is to, to learn these truths, even as kids. How powerful it is to learn them in the form of songs. For as Christians, we understand that the world is already actively doing this. And so too have believers all, always done this preach these same truths over and over and over again, that message of Christ, that message of sufficiency, of salvation. And so as John tells us to abide, as John tells us to defend ourselves against the attack of the opponent, he tells us that we do this by abiding in that message, by preaching that message to ourselves, by preaching that message to the community in which we live. But as John continues to speak, he reminds us that this call to abide is not simply some intellectual exercise. For we also called to abide and that which is our identity. That which is described here as our anointing. Again, look with me towards the end of our passage in 1 John chapter 2. Verse 27, he says, As for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. 
But as his anointing teaches you about all things, and it is true and not a lie, just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the reason why we're able to proclaim this message, the reason why we're able to abide in this and, and maintain perseverance spirit, maintain that confidence, is not simply because we know a, a written word, not just simply because we've memorized the text, but it's because ultimately of who we are. It's because we haven't just been given a text, we've been given a holy anointing of God. Because of my background, this language sounds so charismatic and bizarre to me. This idea that we're anointed by God. Right? It sounds so strange, and yet this is the gift that's been given to every believer. And and what is that gift that John speaks of? What is the holy anointing we've all received? Well, it's the Holy Spirit, isn't it? It's the gift of the third person of the Trinity who indwells every single one of us. And in what little time we have left, it's impossible to to really explore just how grand of reality that is. But we have to understand how precious this this gift is, for in the Old Testament, only a a few select people could could be said to have had the Holy Spirit. You see it in kings, you see it in, in a few select individuals. Jesus Christ himself was the anointed of God as the Messiah. But prior to Christ, prior to the new covenant, this gift was reserved for just a select few. But believer, do you understand? You have something that that Moses begged for, for all the people. You have God indwelling you. It is he who dwells within you. It is he who reminds you of the message you've memorized. It is he who does the work of convicting the world of sin. It's he who tells you when to strike the opponent. It's he who leads you when to share that message with the world around you. It's he who we are told in passages like John 14 walks beside us and guides us and teaches us. Passages like Romans 5 and Galatians 5, it's that spirit who grows fruit in us. It's that spirit who fills us with the love of God. It is that spirit, it is this anointing that drives us forward. It is the spirit who gives us strength. And so as John reminds us of these truths, we're reminded of this, this necessary point. That as the opponent comes and attacks us, as we are guarding ourselves, we're not doing so as some weakling, terrified of the world around us. We're doing so knowing that at any given moment, the opponent's weakness will be made known. We do so knowing that that the Holy Spirit will lead us to strike back eventually, and that our message is infinitely better than what the world presents. One of the greatest fighters of all time, Muhammad Ali, was famous for a technique he called rope-a-dope. And in that technique, he would pretend to be backed into a corner and would, would look as if he was weak and would even kind of drop his hands. And he would do so to deceive the opponent into thinking that, oh, I, I have more, I want him. Muhammad Ali did this knowing that that would then expose the opponent as he would become overly aggressive and attacking, which it would, at which point Muhammad Ali would be able to deliver his counterattack and would brutally beat down his opponent. As believers, we have to remember that because of the message we have, because of our identity and anointing, we always have that upper hand. And regardless of how weak the world might view us, we ultimately know that we are in the winning corner. But in this winning corner, we are still called to fight. We are still called to engage and take the message to this world around us to make disciples, understanding the world is actively engaged in their own mission. 
And as we do this, we are promised that which John speaks of time and time again. We're promised eternal life. We're promised that just as we abide in Christ, Christ will abide in us. And so as we close in our time this morning, and, and just consider all that we've seen this morning with regards to Mission Sunday, it's important that we remember again that this, this fight is something we're all called to engage in. For unbeliever, what this means is, is that your first calling is, is not to fight, your first calling is, is understand your role beneath Christ. And so if you've not yet heard the message of salvation, unbeliever, if you've not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, the calling to you is, is do that today. Place your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, understanding that apart from him, you are a beaten opponent, or a beat, yeah, you ultimately will be a beaten opponent of God. You ultimately sin under his wrath. And so, unbeliever, I pray that you might hear that message this morning. I pray you might understand that the message of Christ, the message of Christ alone, can save you. For my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, let us remember yet again that the fight is not just reserved for those professional missionaries overseas. This fight is one that we're all called to engage in. And so let us be quick to recognize that which is blatantly false in our society. Let us do the necessary work to root out where we are, where we are guilty of, of breathing in that air of deception, breathing in that air of false teaching that is so prevalent in our culture today. And let us not respond with just anger and vitriol, but let us respond with that word of Christ the message we have known from the beginning. As we do this, as we abide in that message, as we abide in our anointing, let us again, as we say every week, look forward to that day of victory. For that victory is ours, for it is the victory of Christ. Let me close this in prayer, and we'll close with one last song. Father in heaven, God, we love you. And we are unworthy of your grace. We are weaklings, God. And left to our own devices, we would be crushed by our opponent. If we are outmatched. But God, as we read the words of 1 John today, Lord, might we be remembered of the fact that we actually are not outmatched, for we have your power within us, God. Might we daily strive to persevere and abide in the message that we know to be true? Might we preach that message to ourselves? Might we preach it to one another? Might we preach it to our children? Might we proclaim it in the world around us? As we do this, God, might we abide in the love you've given us, God. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes to the truth. Might we walk daily according to your leading us, God. And in all this, Father, might we be quick to take the fight to the world in which you placed us, God. Might we prove ourselves to be worthy of the calling, Lord, because of the grace you've given us, God. And might we see your mighty hand at work in us daily. We love you, God. We praise you. Bless our time as we close now. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.